What's up? <laughs> this is something that's been bothering me uh, the last couple of days. There's a lot going on that's probably more important than this, but I think this is, I have a question here that I think needs an investigation or needs an answer. And here, here's what I'm wondering. Why does the country of Israel tweet like a, like a 17 year old Taylor Swift <laughs> stand? <laughs> it's so weird and off-putting. As this, as Israel is like just continually now bombing Gaza into the ground, committing just like atrocity after atrocity, and they're like, "Oh, you don't, you don't stand with Israel. We have the receipts. We we see you and stuff like that." And it's like, what is going on? It's so bizarre. It's really unsettling. Yeah, there was one today that that cracked me up. Uh, a friend sent it to me. Good morning to everyone, except those of you who are having trouble condemning a terrorist organization. <laughs> it's, no, it's just, it's, it's really bizarre. It's one of the most disconcerting things, I think. Like, like it's weird enough having brands talk like they're real people. And like, when you get like fucking the Pillsbury Doughboy or whatever, talking about like suicide prevention month or something with his other, other brand friends, that's weird in and of itself. But then when you've got countries currently engaged in committing countless war crimes using this kind of like language and kind of having this kind of anthropomorphized uh version of itself in, in social media on twitter i don't know it's it's extremely strange i don't know it's i don't know i don't know what's going on with that it's reminiscent of when the army esports twitter account was tweeting uwu at yeah. the discord <laughs> twitter account <laughs> it's just it's so strange like what the fuck these are these are you know accounts representing what i is what i would argue as evil entities and they're pretending to be you know childish innocent uh playful in the middle of i mean in the army in the case of the army like they were actively recruiting children um and trying to cover for it the like you're like you pointed out israel has killed thousands of of people in the past couple weeks not to mention the thousands and thousands of of palestinians they have killed over the years so it just comes off as strange i think they also did a better help tweet yeah they're like this this ethnic cleansing campaign is sponsored by better help it's like (laughs) <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, this is so bizarre. I don't know. It's 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 just something that's making me feel extremely weird and unsettled. And um so the the big story over the last couple of days, we've been we've been trying to cover this conflict and have having important conversations about it or trying to do the best we can to uh you know, uh 
talk about what is happening in a, in a productive way over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, in the past, you know, there's these flare-ups of violence uh, in Israel and Palestine. I feel like there's this, this tendency for people like in the West to want just like, okay, I kind of want just things to go back to normal now, you know, let's, uh, you know, you start to look away, you start to lose sight of what's happening and you realize that, you know, the violence doesn't stop for the people that are, that are trapped in this situation. And so I think it's been important right now to make sure that, you know, we, we don't do that and we don't just like allow, we don't allow this to turn into kind of background noise and we keep focusing on, on what is going on uh, in in Gaza currently, and um, this the big story this week was this uh, this bombing at the Al Alhi Baptist Hospital in Gaza, and I think it was like a, a really stark example of what the cycle of sort of media discourse that happens every time Israel is Israel is accused of of like an atrocity like this that that warrants this kind of big international outcry you saw them kind of there was accounts connected to the government that immediately took credit for it and then didn't and then like it there was this kind of like constantly shifting story and narrative and just a series of lies and deflections and obfuscations one after another that it has this real this effect of really like disorienting you if you're trying to pay attention to this, um, and it makes it you know you you look at this hospital bombing and you know it's the the Occam's razor solution. The easiest answer is that Israel, the country that's dropped six thousand plus bombs on Gaza right now, that has killed like you said thousands of people, over one thousand children. They've bombed multiple other hospitals. Um, they've they called this particular hospital prior to the bombing and mentioned that they should evacuate. I think the easiest answer there is that Israel is responsible for the bombing. Um, but then this, this campaign picks up steam to obfuscate that, to deflect, to have caused people to second guess themselves. You have our media then, which then gets involved in this kind of, he said, she said version of it. And oh, these different version of events uh, you know, some some say that uh, Israel bombed the hospital. Well, the Israeli government says that this was an errant uh, rocket strike from uh, Islamic Jihad or what, whatever they ended up going with. Um, it, it just it's it's really makes it really disorienting trying to follow this. Then, of course, you had all the the OSINT soldiers logging on as well. Um, our friends over at uh, Bellingcat and the ASPI and and institutions like that getting their, their little investigations going and saying, hey, not so fast here. And, you know, all these different methods trying to kind of deflect from what seems to be just kind of the obvious answer here. And, and this is kind of the cycle that happens every time there is one of these these incidents. I mean, you saw the same thing with Shireen Abu Akhli's, uh murder a few months ago. It's it's the same cycle, you know. It's the it's the denial, it's the blaming Hamas, blaming Palestinians, obfuscating, flooding the flooding the narrative or the discourse with all kinds of different contradictory uh, stories, and then later on, months later, when it's confirmed what happened, of course, the outrage has died down, and there's no there's no investigation, there's no consequences, and 
this just seemed to me to be a really stark example of that exact kind of phenomenon that we just see now time and time again for for decades now uh, when it comes to Israel and their their uh, activities uh, against Palestinians. Yeah, there was this collective shaming of anybody who took the initial reporting by Al Jazeera. They were on the ground. As soon as I saw that this had happened, I, I have YouTube TV so I could monitor a bunch of channels at once. And obviously every American network was covering the vote on the House floor to replace Kevin McCarthy. So Al Jazeera was the only network talking about it, and they had someone on the ground. They had a camera at the hospital. So I'm watching this, and they're explicitly saying this is Israel. Because, like you said, this is a country that has been bombing Gaza for about 10, 11 days now, have already killed thousands of people, have specifically named this hospital, told them to evacuate. I mean, all signs point to Israel. And like, and then again, Israel initially took credit. Some people in the Israeli government or connected to the Israeli government took credit for it. So people accepted that, said, okay, Israel did this. Also, the size and scale, especially in death toll, is not something typically associated with a Hamas rocket. This was reported, as far as I know, one time on MSNBC, but in a pretty good segment, also pointing out that because of their behavior in incidents like this in the past, you really shouldn't take Israel's government at its word, which I think is an important point that you should continually be making, especially in Western press. After Israel denounced it, and then, especially several hours later, and the next day when Biden just echoed their deflection, saying, well, U.S. intel uh, agrees with Israel that they didn't do it. Neither of these are trustworthy sources, ever. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I don't know what more you need to see to understand that two governments that are strong allies, so much so that yesterday when the U.N. Security Council put forward a resolution to call for a pause in combat to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza— the U.S., as one of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, used its veto power to block that resolution. That is how strong they stand with Israel. And this is, they have done this dozens and dozens of times, as Omar Badar, who was on the show last week, explained to us. Neither of these two people are A, neutral parties, or B, trustworthy. And so there was this collective round of shaming who, of everybody who I think rightfully understood this to be an act by IDF. Oh, how dare you take Hamas at its word? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you, you, oh yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Did Israel just not kill thousands of people over the past 10 days? The effect though, of this denial has had a ripple effect into all of those other aspects of this, this attack or these attacks on Gaza, because then people started to say, well, Hey, Maybe that death toll is inaccurate after all. You know, we, we shouldn't be taking the Gazans' word for this, uh, for anything. Yeah. And and that's that's really dangerous when we're talking about things like ethnic cleansing and genocide. The, worth pointing out as well, this exact attitude, sorry to interrupt, but worth pointing out just very briefly, this exact attitude was kind of the prevailing attitude about Palestinians before people got access to smartphones that could fo take photographs and video and prove that the violence that people were saying was happening was happening. 
there was this whole narrative prior to prior to that when there was less information and less reporting that oh this is being exaggerating uh nothing is really happening like what they're saying and like this is the idea that we're kind of returning to that even with the overwhelming amounts of evidence that we can see about the violence that, that is going on is incredibly fucked up yeah no i, th- I actually i'm glad you said that because thankfully channel 4 and al jazeera have both since done segments analyzing all of these claims all of the available evidence all of the available video feeds and cell phone videos of the attack and juxtaposed all of this evidence with what israel is claiming which is hamas or or islamic jihad uh, fired rockets either from a rooftop or from a cemetery nearby and one misfired well here's the thing all of the video that we have showing the purported failed mis- or the purported fa- failed missile all of these strikes either a don't line up or were intercepted or were not at the right time they both of them both segments produced independently reached the same conclusion I mean, be, uh, Channel Four, I think, was probably the the one people should really pay attention to. Although Al Jazeera's was great, Channel Four also took a look at the quote evidence presented the next day, which was the intercepted phone call oh, God. that uh, the IDF produced. The Abin Costello ass uh, Hamas guys, yeah, yeah, like explicitly saying, <laughs> "Oh, this was not Israeli shrapnel. This was our shrapnel." Yeah, we were we were firing missiles near the hospital. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a big expert on doing terrorism, but my understanding is you want to avoid those kind of phone calls usually when you're engaging in that kind of thing. And reportedly they do, which would make it, you know, this is also the same country and, and military that missed two years of planning leading up to this moment. They know yeah. they're being surveilled. They're not going to hop on the phone and admit it. <laughs> and which led to Channel 4's investigation, talking to multiple linguists and experts, all of them reaching the same conclusion that based on the syntax based on the vernacular, based on the accents, these are very likely, if not they're certain, that these people purportedly who you hear on the on the video were not affiliated with Hamas. Yeah, and, and just, you know, I wanted to just hit on that talking point that's being used, oh, you believe Hamas. Like, it's not only Israel saying that, but it's their supporters, like, in the U.S. government kind of saying the same thing. You know, this rush to believe Hamas, and it's that's really not what is going on in this case. In the case of looking at this attack or anything else, it's a case of believing your own two eyes and like using your brain and trying to kind of like uh, respond in that way. And like when you see doctors from this hospital giving then a press conference just surrounded by corpses, you know, this was this explosion was mostly in the parking lot, but this is a place where hundreds of families have been coming to seek shelter because it's one of the only possible places where they feel like they were safe from this bombing onslaught see doctors giving a press conference talking about this surrounded by corpses that's not taking hamas's word that's taking the word of the people that are in that situation that are directly there that are being impacted by it and affected by it um it's so craven this idea that assuming that that bombing which was so horrendous was responsible was the responsibility of israel is somehow taking the word of hamas it's just preposterous and it's 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 grotesque as we've said on every episode and we'll say again like (laughs) zero sympathy or uh any there's no zero support 
for Hamas. Like this is, I just, I, I can't even believe we're in this moment. I mean, I can, but people have weaponized that to deflect from what Israel is doing and the horrors they are inflicting on innocent civilians. And I saw this point made somewhere else earlier today, and I can't remember, but it it should go without saying that Israel should be held to a higher standard than a group the world sees as a terrorist organization. You should, like, if you are upset by their behavior and the atrocities they committed, that doesn't give Israel a pass to do the same thing. You are, or you much are worse. a military um, fighting with people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're a military fighting against people who have cobbled together weapons, who are using like go-karts and parachutes to get over a fence. Like you have fighter jets, you have tanks, you have the backing of the US military with aircraft carriers right off the shore. And you want to you want to be held to the same standard as, as Hamas? No, it, it's it's bullshit. People are expecting more because they are a government with the backing of some of the most powerful militaries and governments in the world. And it just, this deflection has just been driving me nuts since this whole conflict uh, broke out, this most recent iteration of the conflict, rather. Because it's it's not really about that. It's not real. They know deep down that no one is supporting Hamas. It's It's a deflection, it is an excuse, and it's a distraction. Just how they accuse anyone of supporting who supports BDS of being anti-Semitic, just like they have anyone in Congress who has called for, uh, you know, maybe a reassessment of our alliance with Israel or even just supporting Palestinians as anti-Semitic. These are what they keep in their pocket to pull out whenever somebody criticizes Israel at large or what Israel does. It's you're anti-Semitic. And in this case, it's you're pro Hamas. No, no reasonable, rational person is pro Hamas. Well, it's really, I think the really disturbing thing that's going on is we've really returned very, very quickly to this like post nine 11 kind of mentality. Um, and you saw the exact same thing in the, in the run up to the Iraq war with the massive, uh, anti Iraq war protests that were framed as being pro Saddam Hussein. Um, and that was what anyone was called that wanted to take that kind of a stance. Um, or, you know, being, being called pro-Taliban because you're against the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. It's it's really cynical um, and, and not, you know, it's it's really unhelpful. You know, framing these, these massive protests, like I pointed out in our last conversation that we had with Jeremy Appel, I think on day one, as soon as this this started, when we saw the this escape from this uh, Gaza concentration camp, people knew full well what was what it was going to mean and that it was going to mean this massive brutal counterattack and it was important on day 1 to stand firmly uh up for Palestinian human rights and to support support Palestinians when they're for sure undergoing this like brutal violence and the way that that's been framed repeatedly as being like pro-terrorism, pro-Hamas, anyone that makes any kind of statement critical of Israel, you know, it's just, it's really disgusting. And uh, I don't know, if you'll allow me to take a little digression here um, while we're kind of on this subject, because, you know, if you're you're someone that supports, uh, you know, Palestinian liberation, if you support the end to the occupation, this has been a difficult moment, I think, to, to try and make sense of. And 
you know, for just for a personal example, when I woke up on on Saturday when this started, and I looked on Twitter and I saw images of this Gaza prison fence being bulldozed, um, you know, anyone that knows anything about Gaza and what what people in Gaza have been going through for the last twenty years, or what the occupation has meant for you know seventy years, should be inspired by that kind of image. Um, and then you know, stories about about what happened when the, when people started escaping from Gaza at some of these kibbutzes at this uh, at this music festival come out, and it it's it's difficult. It's difficult to try and come up with kind of a moral stance about that. And it's been it's been really helpful for me to look through history. Like I've talked before a couple times, like what we're talking about here in this case is it's the violence of settler colonialism. Uh, you know, it's the violence of apartheid. And that includes the kind of like the violence that we've seen against, uh, against Israeli c- civilians, some of which has been exaggerated and some of which has been lied about. But I think it's been confirmed that there have been attacks and, and deaths of Israeli civilians. And, you know, that's a that is horrible. You know, that is a horrible thing, especially when children are affected by this. Um, one one historical incident that I've been thinking about a lot uh, over the last couple of uh, days has been uh, is the Indian mutiny, which took place. It was it was during uh, the the uh, when the British East India Company was uh, had colonized and was occupying India. Gosh, my dates are a little rough. I think it's in the 1870s that it took place. My 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 dates are a little uh, sketchy on that. It's around there, okay. I'm not an I'm not a historical expert. I'm a I'm a 40 year old man and a nerd, so it's like, yeah, I'm going to sometimes read about the British <laughs> Empire. But so the, in the Indian Mutiny, these these sepoys who were uh, soldiers, like in the East India Company military establishment, uh, Indians these like companies of Indian uh, sepoys, they mutinied against the British military, which led to this widespread revolt throughout uh, British India. And, um, you know, these mutineers, there was a couple of incidents where these mutineers inflicted very horrible violence on not just British soldiers, but their wives and families, you know, women and children were, were murdered. And it's really horrible. Like it's, it's horrible to read about and to think about. Um, but I think it helps kind of put some of the the violence that we've seen in Palestine over the last couple of weeks into that kind of context. And I think when you understand how the violence of colonialism and the violence of a several century long occupation of India that exploited millions of people, that extracted trillions of dollars in wealth, um, you know, that it, that's an incredibly violent uh, process. Um, colonialism. And I think when you think about incidents like that, like the Indian mutiny, it's, you look back on that and it's, like I said, the violence against civilians is, is horrifying, but it's not about celebrating that or thinking that that's good that that happened or supporting that, but also just recognizing that this is part of a cycle of violence that colonialism creates. Um, when you colonize people and exploit people for decades or centuries, you create that kind of a situation. Um, and it's really horrible, but that's just the inevitable result. And I, okay. So another example as well, we, t- um, you can look at the, the Nat Turner slave uprising, um, which also where slave owners and their families were killed and, you know, civilians like, uh, were, were murdered as part of this uprising. And one thing that I thought was really helpful was, um, so Norman Finkelstein was, uh, 
he he did an interview with on Katie Halper's show the other day. And Finkelstein is not someone that I agree with about everything. I do find his like clarity on this issue, this issue for me personally has been really, I think, important to to help put it into a context. And he was talking about his his the conflicted feelings that he was having as someone that has been against Zionism and apartheid and and settler colonialism uh, in Israel for like his whole career and has has had a lot of uh, negative career consequences as a result of it. Um. So he was he was talking about this analogy about the the Nat Turner slave uprising and what he was looking at and I found this very interesting. He wanted to look at what white abolitionists were saying after that incident happened. Um, and it was very fascinating looking into that because what what these abolitionists were saying after that moment and this was not a popular stance to take at that time as you can imagine. But they framed things in in kind of that similar way. They it's not that they condemned the uprising. They didn't sit there and say, you know, we don't we condemn Nat Turner, we condemn this slave uprising. They had an attitude that was like, this violence is horrible and it's shocking. And we told you this was gonna happen. This is the responsibility of the slave owners. This is the responsibility of people that have propped up this institution of slavery. You allowed this to happen. That's why it's that's why it's happening. Um so I think it, that's been valuable. You see that you see similar incidents like all all throughout history of colonized people that are trying to up, like uh, rise up against their colonizers and their oppressors. You see it in the Haitian Revolution. Um, you see it in Vietnam, and civilians inevitably get cut up in the crossfire. But I think that's the that's provided me, I think, with a with a sort of grounding to understand why this is going on a little bit more, and that's why I think it's more important than ever that. I think I've said this on every episode that we've done since this started, but if you are shocked and horrified and scandalized by violence against civilians that has happened, I think the the takeaway that everyone needs to take from that is that this is the, this is the violence. This is the legacy of apartheid of uh, settler colonialism and which is it, which is a ruthlessly violent process uh, that is inflicted on people. People in Gaza have been in a concentration camp for decades, and people have grown up in that environment from children to adulthood. And what we've and if we want to talk about some of that violence that we've seen, it's unfortunately an inevitable result of this really brutal and violent system that has been put in place in Israel for decades now. So that is something for me that has allowed me, I think, to kind of process this and try and uh, find a way to have a kind of moral framework that we can understand, you know, what is happening, why this violence is occurring. And like I said, we, we shouldn't support that kind of violence, but we need to understand that the source of that violence is these, these brutal institutions of uh, apartheid and settler colonialism. That's what's causing it. And if we, if that has to end, the occupation has to end. I know there's a lot of, talk about a ceasefire right now and there should be a ceasefire considering how many people are dying but i don't know if there's a possibility to return to some kind of status quo i don't know if there's like there's any desire for that on the part of the palestinians or people in gaza to just go back to the regular routine violence of the status quo um and as long as that occupation continues as long as the institution of apartheid that's that's happening continues uh to the extent that it has been we're just going to see more and more uprisings like this and more and more violence 
And like you've else at other times during history, when you've seen this kind of violence in response to, um, you know, colonized peoples, it's always met with a, it's always used as a justification for an even more brutal backlash against the very people. So that's how that cycle has to stop. Uh, it's not about everyone laying down their arms and being nice to each other. The occupation has to stop. Uh, the apartheid has to stop. That's the only thing that's ever going to stop this kind of cycle of violence. It's a difficult thing to think through and certainly not something I would want to articulate in any limited capacity. That's not something I'm going to go out and tweet. You know, that's yeah. not something I'm going to try to you know justify on Twitter. But here we can talk about it. We could think about it together. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have been feeling the same way. You're not alone in that. And I talked about it with my therapist just to find some place where I could at least express these thoughts without, you know, judgment. And maybe she's judging me. I don't think, so. I don't think she is, but she she's might not be. Allowed. But yeah, I mean, if she is, she's not allowed to talk about it. But there, there was this moment where when it first happened and then they, this started to boil, it's not that you're celebrating people being killed innocent people being like unaffiliated civilian people being killed never simultaneously it's it's not surprising because of all of this history because of the oppression because of the occupation i mean you're keeping two million people in an open-air prison when they peacefully assembled in 2018 2019 the great march of return which you've brought up on the past couple episodes they were shot at. If they even went up to the fence, you would get shot. This has been the case for decades. You are like, this is like mental torture for people who live in there on top of the blockade, the denial of basic amenities, services, just basic dignity that every human is entitled to and deserves. It is not surprising when there's backlash. And if you don't want people, if you are in support of Israel, if you are team, I stand with Israel, which is not, it's, sorry, let me, that's that. I hate I shouldn't have said that. It's not a team. Yeah. If you quote stand with Israel and you don't see why Palestinians are justifiably outraged and want this occupation to end. I, I I don't know what 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 result you're thinking of or what what result you think would come about keeping two million people in an open air prison for decades and just expecting them to accept that. No human wants to be in that situation. What what did you think was going to happen? And again, you can't articulate this elsewhere. But if you don't want people to die, and if you don't want this to happen again, like you're talking about a return to a status quo, ending the occupation is the easiest way to guarantee this does not happen again. Because that is the source of their anger. That is a source of their frustration. This is, it, it is a no-brainer. You know, a good way, like you're saying, the, the way to avoid the Nat Turner slave uprising would have been to not have slavery what would they <laughs> yeah. rebel against like this is this is this is it is so simple but throughout history time and time again it has shown that when a group of people conspire together to oppress another group of people at some point down the line there will be backlash 
So stop. End the block. End end the occupation. This is it is a no brainer. Yeah, and and like as should be clear to anyone, it makes everyone less safe, including Israelis. Um, as despite this idea that people are told that this is the only safe place for Jewish people to go, it's not accurate at all. Um, and it just it seems like what we're seeing now this this response um, that we're looking at right now it looks like now this today the IDF announced that they were going to go ahead with this kind of ground invasion. Um, which is a, a scary moment because now there really feels like a possibility that this could escalate to something even more serious, possibly drawing in other actors, Hezbollah or whoever else. Um, so it's a it's a very kind of scary moment for that reason because you know this this blowing up into an even larger conflict is obviously not going to be good for anyone in the region either. Um, but it also seems it seems like this has been used as a pretext to fulfill the kind of vision that the sort of increasingly fascist Netanyahu faction of the Israeli government has been wanting to do for some time, which is to completely ethnically cleanse uh, Palestine or uh, to, to, to get people out of Gaza or at least nor- Northern Gaza at this time, uh, or to like fully fulfill their, their process, their whole, uh, you know, settler colonialist project. Like these people, like the people that are part of this movement, which at one point was, I think somewhat of a fringe movement, which is now like completely taken over Israeli politics. Um, they're not interested in hearing about a two state solution. They want a one state solution, one state called Israel that they control. And they need to remove, they need to for once and for all, get rid of the Palestinians in order to achieve that. And it seems like that's kind of like what they're, what their goal is right now. And I, I thought it was absolutely grotesque to see Joe Biden, while this carnage is going on, this nonstop bombing campaign, this mass murder campaign, you know, expediting this whole ethnic cleansing project. It's being bought and paid for by U.S. bombs that are subsidizing it, in addition to all the billions of dollars of military aid that go there every single year. For Joe Biden, the president of the United States, to show up in Israel while this is happening, the day after this hospital blast, and give Netanyahu a big hug and do this press conference where he denied Israel's uh, involvement in this hospital blast, and then you know giving this kind of bullshit speech about how freedom will win while just thousands of people are being killed. I don't know, man. I think it's like, it's really feels like a turning point in a way. Like I've had a lot of criticisms for Biden and foreign policy and everything like that. I've been kind of willing to entertain for as long as I've been paying attention to us politics, this kind of lesser of two evils argument, but it's like, it's getting harder and harder to make this argument when you got the democratic party, almost to a person with a few, a few people maybe objecting a little bit, um, co-signing this genocidal campaign. And you're seeing it having impact. Like there's people now resigning from the State Department. I saw Ro Khanna's uh, political director just resigned. Like there's people that are in the party that are really coming, having a crisis of conscience at, the mom- at, conscience at the moment and are actually quitting and leaving. And it seems like, it feels like there's some, a shift has happened, doesn't it? Like it, it feels that they have they have gone all in on supporting this and i don't think history is going to remember this moment for the democratic party or joe biden very kindly and uh i thought it was absolutely disgusting to see him go and 
and give his support for Israel while they're engaged in this absolute barbarity. You know, I think it's just fucking awful. It's a very worrying moment with factions in Lebanon getting involved, factions in uh, Iran potentially getting involved in Syria, and an escalation from the Houthi rebels in Yemen. There are a few different things boiling in, in the Middle East that I'm really, really worried could trigger a much larger conflict beyond just the one in Gaza. Um, the U.S., you know, now we have talks about boots on the ground. We've got aircraft carriers there. I am extremely worried that this could expand into, again, a much larger regional conflict, if not some sort of commingling between the Russia and Ukraine conflict uh, I, I would, God forbid, but a, a world war. I mean, this that would be horrific. Um, but it does seem like more than any time that I can remember or even think of, that's we might be getting close to those sorts of conditions. You know, uh, I'm not sure there are enough strong voices in the Biden administration or in the State Department who are able and willing to advocate for diplomacy. And what's especially troubling, like you say with the ceasefire, granted that would not solve everything, but it would be the first step in Gaza. Yeah. You have Democrats rebuking this idea of a ceasefire, saying now is not the time. And Israel's ground invasion of Gaza seemingly has full support from everybody with their hands on the mechanisms of power in the U.S. government. That that aggression, that escalation, obviously is going to be horrific for people in Gaza, but I think that might also bring other regional players into the mix, which is only going to make things even more complicated, even more deadly, even more uh, and create an even higher risk of a much larger regional conflict. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, I want to just focus specifically on who you just like hinted at here, which is John Fetterman. And that's what we, we covered the Fetterman Senate race. There's been, you know, we've, we've talked about Fetterman's kind of progressive values, his, his time off to treat depression and these things, and this kind of like lighthearted story about uh, Senate dress codes and everything. For John Fetterman to, when Israel is in the process of killing this number of people, and again, over 1,000 children have been killed in Gaza over the last 10 days or so. For John Fetterman, while that's going on, to say, now is not the time for a ceasefire, I think is a absolute disgrace. Um you know, it's like it's been a real mask off moment for a lot of people that have this kind of progressive veneer. And maybe in some ways they do have some progressive values supporting unions or whatever. But to me, that that's a stain that you can't just wash off. Um, it's not just him. There's a lot of people in the Democratic Party that are uh, like this. Um, a lot of Democrats, like powerful Democrats, are going to Israel right now. It's like, oh, no, we can't just let Biden do this. We got to go. We got to Gavin Newsom has to go, too. And the governor of New York, like, what are you, what are you going to Israel for? Like, what the, what the fuck? Especially while this kind of absolute carnage is going on. 
it's just, it's perplexing. And like I said, we've talked about the sort of progressive movement in the Democratic Party. We, we're going to come up to this election. You know, they, they're, they're going to be saying it's the, it's the most important election of your lifetime. And all the same argu- arguments are going to be trotted out to justify why you should go vote for someone like John Fetterman or, or, or uh, whoever else, you know, Chris Murphy or whatever other kind of vaguely progressive Democrat that they're going to talk about. But, you know, it's becoming basically impossible to make that case that there is some kind of a lesser evil when they're co-signing like actual, like what Palestinians are calling an actual genocide, ethnic cleansing, mass murder of children, and you have these progressive Democrats supporting it. It's absolutely grotesque. And frankly, I think there's just going to be a lot of people in the next election cycle when these people expect them to go line up and vote for them that are not going to do it. I think this is going to be a red line for a lot of people. And I think that's a completely understandable position to take to say, I will not vote for these people anymore if they're going to co-sign this. I think that's completely legitimate. And I know the kind of consequences that can have if that leads to even more far right wing lunatics taking over, but that's the inevitable result. Like when you're supposed to be a moderately liberal or progressive party and you co-sign this kind of brutal violence, that's the, that's going to alienate people. Like I don't see any other solution. And I, I, I wouldn't blame anyone for saying I will not ever vote for this party again, you know, for the fact that they have so enthusiastically supported this like brutal genocidal campaign, you know? So <laughs> I just think it, I, to go back to Fetterman again, I just think that was absolutely uh, horrific uh, to, to say yeah. something like that in the midst of this kind of violence. It really reflects how the democratic party has just been completely neutered as an anti-war party. The anti-war voices in the Democratic Party are few and far between. They're certainly a minority, but that was something it prided itself on for a while, and they should have, you know? I mean, this is this is really pathetic. Now, both parties are pro-war parties. You have factions in both that are anti-war, but they're small. And as we've talked about repeatedly on this show, that vacuum creates an opportunity for the right to exploit. Because even though they're showing here that they're really not anti-war yeah. because they're supporting Israel, it does give them a little bit of wiggle room to deploy some anti-war rhetoric when convenient, specifically in relation to Ukraine, that wins over independence or generally anti-war people and think, hey, maybe we could find you know bipartisan uh, room to operate here. I don't think that's true because as we've seen time and time again, their quote anti-war stance never includes any pathway to citizenship for refugees created by war. It never really is met with any push for diplomacy. It's just simply we need to cut funding for X, Y, and Z conflict because we're quote anti-war and that's the beginning and the end. That's not truly in my opinion, anti-war because an anti-war politician anti-war policy must the center of it must be diplomacy uh strong diplomatic international relations built on protecting human rights inclusivity intersectionality uh you know mutual aid all of these good attributes and the right-wing anti-war 
fringe is totally devoid of any of those characteristics. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the risk is more not th- that there's going to be, they're going to lose any people to this movement. I mean, the whole Israel issue, I think has shown that a lot of these people that had this kind of like stance about Ukraine because it got framed as a liberal thing have shown that they're full in full support of Israel. And some of these people have been the most rabid about denouncing the pro-Palestinian protests or whatever. So that's been exposed as being just a complete sham, this whole like libertarian anti-war faction uh, within the within the the right or the Republican Party. But uh, I think the risk, though, is alienation. I think the risk is that for many people, especially young people that are passionate about this, in addition to the other ways that the Biden administration and the Dems have completely failed them on student debt, on climate, they can brag about their big climate plan all they want, but it's been... It's an ex- extremely low bar, uh, this kind of like climate investment that maybe you could argue they managed to uh, uh, step over. That's debatable in and of itself. Um, but there's a number of reasons. And this is just the latest like insult to people that want to be able to go and vote for like a party that has vaguely liberal or progressive ideas. So it's not that I think people are going to say, oh, I'm, because of this, I'm going to go vote Republican. But I think a lot of people are justifiably going to say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. That kind of apathy, that that empowers the right, right? It's not necessarily just losing people and losing people to that constituency, but that apathy, which this exact kind of behavior creates, does help them. And as I said, I think I think not wanting to support this party anymore, if, if people were still on board, this kind of idea about lesser evilism or this kind of argument, I think that's completely legitimate. Um, you know, so well, I don't know what that's going to mean, but it does feel like some something has kind of been broken here. Well, Walid Shahid, former Justice Democrats, uh, I think comms director, progressive who has, you know, worked in this world for, for years, pointed that out yesterday on, on Twitter, specifically talking about the impact that the Biden administration's stance, actions, rhetoric, support of Israel and tonight he's giving an address right now talking about how he's calling for more funding for Israel on top of him supporting the ground invasion into Gaza. Now, Walid pointed out that all of these things together could have a negative electoral impact, specifically in Michigan, yeah. where there is a large Muslim population. Now, Michigan is a key state. It's a swing state. It has been it has had close margins and most of the recent presidential elections, it's a state that Biden would desperately need to win. He pointed out that these stances, these positions, these actions could lead to some Palestinian voters, but also just voters at large in Michigan sitting out. I think the, the key takeaway there would be Palestinian or Muslim voters. Yeah, I think Arab Arab communities, they see the way that like... yeah. What the, what the Dem, what the Democratic Party establishment what their values are with respect to these kind of communities so yeah I think that's totally absolutely reasonable. I think that's a totally fair point and the people who you know spend most of their days or lives just defending the Democratic Party capital D and Biden flipped out as if it was just like totally off base and saying things like well I guess you'll be better under Trump. No, I don't think. I think any rational person reading that would realize that Wally does not want Trump to be to be president again. He's saying 
there is a risk of Trump becoming president if these actions continue because the Democrats would lose votes or there's a great likelihood the Democrats would lose votes. And that nobody is willing to think long term about this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not even really long term. The election is next year. Yeah. That no one is willing to consider that there is a there is an effect from people's actions, from Biden's actions, his administration's actions. It's confusing to me. I mean, you want to think about these things and we we hear it every election year. And time and time again, it just seems more and more hollow, especially when they're talking about black voters. Oh, we really shouldn't just be hitting up black voters and during election years we really need to do more and you know going forward we're going to be we're going to do better we're going to do more and get on that any day now what happens what happens nothing (laughs) it's okay election year hey oh we we love black democratic voters and here it is it's they're going to pay lip service election year but in off years it, it is things like this people need to be given a reason to vote rather than just the other guy is worse because that, like you say, lesser of two evils, that's not a long-term sustainable path to victory or electoral strategy. Eventually there's going to be something that just turns people off and makes them nihilistic to the whole process overall. So if you really want to think about long-term gains, you have to think short, medium and long-term in your strategy. And I think it's completely reasonable to say when you have a huge block of Muslim voters in Michigan, you need to show them that you care about them, their people, their communities, their diaspora, people that they know around the world, and give them a reason to continue voting for you. I don't think that Biden is doing that at this moment. No, and, and listen, we can talk about electoral consequences of this or possible electoral consequences, but there's also just an issue of right or wrong here. And, you know, like this is what... Democrats try to triangulate all the time on all kinds of issues. Well, you know, if we don't stand by Israel, we're going to get hammered by APAC. We're going to get hammered by the Republicans, whoever. That's not a reason not to. That that's not a reason to not call for a ceasefire, or to try and do something to stop a mass a world a, a in the eye with the whole world watching this like absolutely grotesque bombing campaign unbelievable levels of violence like that's it's wrong to support that there's it's beyond any electoral consequences or what people are what lobbying groups or the media is going to say about you like there's there's a higher morality there that they're failing um and yeah i think you see this effort to try and appease everyone and that's i think there's a moral there's a morally correct stance here which is to stand against apartheid and trying to end the occupation there's really only one person in the US government that I can think of that's really doing that which is Rashida Tlaib I think Cory Bush has done some good statements I saw and listen I'm going to preface this by saying there's a lot of people that are on the like the squad watch that have built whole careers off of talking about how they're frauds or pointing out everything every single thing that they get wrong I've never really wanted to contribute to that. I don't think it's that helpful. Sometimes you can take a look at like what the the failures of the entryism movement into the Democratic Party or other other sort of mainstream parties, you know, elsewhere in the world. So I've never really wanted to contribute to that. I did see her, and I, I she's been trying to formulate a kind of stance on this, uh, 
But I also saw her go on the media the other day when she was asked if she would fund the Iron Dome today. She voted present on the Iron Dome funding uh, at the last opportunity, and she said she would. Um, that to me is not acceptable if you're a progressive member of Congress to not take that moment to just say no. No, I will not vote to fund Israel's military in any way. Look at what they're doing. And to take that question and frame it about – and to turn the framing into a, a criticism of of empire, of apartheid, of ethnic cleansing, colonialism. I mean that's – when someone like AOC tries to take these stances and tries to make everyone happy, they still call her some Hamas-loving terrorist sympathizer. She's not winning anyone over, and it's not not to ex- 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 exclusively talk about her. Anyone that tries to take this kind of like, sit, d- I'm going to try and make as few people mad as possible with this with this statement. That's it's not possible right now. It's not, and this is a time that anyone that's like in that system, the whole point of like working inside these big parties is to when it matters to have a voice to do the right thing. And you're not going to make anyone happy, everyone happy. Now is the time for anyone that's part of that movement, that kind of progressive movement, the progressive wing, to take a firm stance against the violence that we're seeing and not try to do this like this kind of triangulation where you try to make everyone happy. You talk a little bit about the occupation. You also talk about the need to fund an Iron Dome to protect Israeli citizens. I think now is the time to make bold, brave stances, no matter who doesn't like it, whether it's the people in the elites of the party that don't like it or whether your voters are not going to like it. Like I said, there's kind of a higher morality going on right now. And it's a time that if, if you're in part of that system, it's time to take a actually morally brave stance. That's what we're seeing Rashida Tlaib doing. And I think more people should follow her lead rather than do this kind of like mealy mouth of uh, both sides. And that ends up just appeasing no one and makes all the same people still just as angry. Uh, it's, it's, it's a completely worthless way of going about this, in my opinion. Just as you were saying that, in Biden's address, he is proposing what he calls an unprecedented aid package for Israel (laughs) and Ukraine. So Ukraine would receive $60 and Israel would receive an additional $14 That would be a moment where... The, quote, anti-war progressives, potentially anti-war conservatives, this would be a moment, even if they're unsuccessful, this would be a moment where they could use their time on the floor during debate to actually and meaningfully voice criticism of this plan. Speak to the atrocities that Israel has committed. Speak to the ongoing military aid that the United States continues to funnel into these countries to the detriment of domestic services, to domestic programs, as we see cuts across the board to things like social safety net programs that people here rely on, we seemingly never have any fiscal issues related to continuing to arm militaries around the world, send send military aid or weapons around the world. There's never any calls for fiscal responsibility in these moments. If you are truly an anti-war progressive or even an anti-war conservative, quote, use this moment to show it. Do what you can to slow it down, to impede progress, to, to potentially, if you could find a way, you could find the votes to stop this. 
I think coupling this was a bit of a cynical move because they know that some people who would oppose the Israel funding would not also oppose the funding for Ukraine. But that's not that's not my problem to navigate. That's yours. And sadly, I don't think that they actually will take this opportunity. Yeah. And I happen to agree that the United States should stop funding both Ukraine and Israel. Um, but yeah, like you said, like even if they're not able to stop that, now is the time to take a, a actual moral stance on this, no matter who it pisses off. Um, you know, what if you're not if you're not doing that in those moments, then what are you there for? You know? Um so just overall, the response has been has been really, I think, kind of an embarrassment to see uh, for the vast majority of people that even even we might talk about sometimes the kind of progressive values that they have. And by the way, everything that I'm saying also applies to the NDP in Canada. Like no no one in any Western country is doing anything to to stop this. Um, we like our friend Jeremy Appel in the last episode talked about the the NDP um, member of provincial parliament, Sarah Jama, who put out, was one of the only people in the NDP party to put out a statement that remotely was acceptable at all that did talk about apartheid and did talk about settler colonialism. And also, uh, which is important as well, something I've been trying to do on this show and elsewhere, tie together uh, Canada's role as a settler colonialist country that is responsible for genocide with the settler colonialism and genocide that we're seeing uh, in Palestine right now. And she was totally thrown under the bus by her own party. Um, you know, she was acted, she was asked to retract this statement. Um, hilariously, Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario called her like a, a terrorist sympathizer who, who thinks that women deserve to be raped or something. And now he's now Sarah Jama is actually threatening to sue him for defamation, which is actually a kind of funny outcome of all that. But, um, you know, we talk about the United States government on this show and what's going on there. I've talked before about why I think it's important for people around the world to pay attention to what's going on and that's the global hegemon in the United States. But everything that I'm saying about about anyone that's part of any kind of progressive movement in one of these big parties uh, in any Western country, the vast majority of these people are completely failing to meet this moment and are not not capable, it seems, of showing an ounce of like courage on this issue. I get that it's fraught. I get that it's difficult to make this kind of paint a target on yourself like this by making these claims and people will come after you. The Israel lobby will come after you. The conservative media is going to come after you. It's not easy, you know, but that's what you're there for is to in when it's in difficult moments like that, take an actual brave moral stance, you know, and not nearly enough people that are part of this kind of these, these different big parties uh, around the Western world are doing that right now. And I think it's an embarrassment. Absolutely. To wrap things up, as we mentioned, a ceasefire is just the beginning, but it is an essential next step that must be taken immediately. To make that easier, you can go to ceasefiretoday.com. You can, with one click, in 30 seconds of your time, email your representative and both your senators through a tool that the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the anti-war Quaker group, put together. Immediately email them a letter demanding a ceasefire. There's a call script on that website. You can click a button and immediately call the Capitol switchboard, tell them which office you want to talk to, ask them to support a ceasefire with the script that's provided on the website. You find a protest near you. You can find a petition to sign. You can find links to donate to 
Doctors Without Borders, and um, the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, and much more. Adding more, pro- I'm adding more protests tonight. You can go to ceasefiretoday.com to take to take action. Already in the past 48 hours, nearly 10,000 people have gone there to take action to demand a ceasefire. It's a small start, but we have to show a huge critical mass nationwide that we want this. And I think the U.S. is in a unique position to exercise leverage over Israel and potentially change things to help prevent any more unnecessary deaths in Gaza. Yeah, and thank you for doing that. That's really great. And also, people, if you can, should uh, go to a protest over this. I've, uh, I'm not lecturing anyone about this. It seems like every, there's been a few protests here in Montreal and it seems like every time I have parenting duties and I haven't really been able to get out of it. Um, but this is really turning into like a global mass movement. Um, like I said, it feels like there's kind of a turning point that has been reached and that, that is another way to indicate that for the vast majority of people around the world do not want this apartheid system to continue. Um, so that's, that's another thing obviously that anyone can do to, um, show support and solidarity, uh, for Palestinians right now. And also, you know, Palestinians and Arabs in your, your own community, we're already seeing violence being, uh, inflicted upon innocent people. Like there's a horrifying story of the six year old boy that was stabbed by his landlord as a direct result of the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing right now. Uh, it's really, really disgraceful. So it's a really important moment, I think, to, you know, stand with the people in your community that are being impacted by this. Um, so a number of things people can do. It's it, it's a really helpless feeling sometimes watching this kind of horror show unfold and sitting there and doom scrolling on your phone. And it, it makes you feel so alone and helpless. And there really are a few things you can do. Do we have the power to stop the violence, to stop the occupation? You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, these are very powerful forces at play there, but uh, you're not alone and there are things that you can do. So I think that's something that anyone should probably try and hold on to right now. Absolutely. Well, this is a, a good conversation. Uh, I'm glad we could talk about this. Like I said, you're up front. I think it's, this is not going away. Um, we're going to continue doing coverage of this as long as it's, as long as it's going on uh, this, this uh, campaign of like horrendous violence that we're seeing in Gaza. So um, I'm glad that people have been tuning into the, to what the conversations we've been having about this. I hope it's been helpful somehow. You know, I, I would like to think that it's, it's, it is, you know, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's a moment that everyone feels very helpless, but I'm glad we could do this one. Thanks everyone for listening. We will be back again uh, with some more episodes next week. That's all. That's all I got. (laughs) That's it. See ya. Goodbye.